The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. And welcome to episode 20 of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. Joining us this time around is a man who joined the Wizard crew as a copy editor and yet found himself taking on many roles with many magazines over the years, from Inquest to Sci-Fi Evasion and even Bean Power, before finding work in the world of video games and beyond. So we're ready to get the inside story from the one and only Greg Orlando. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that great introduction. Yeah, well, there's a lot to work with here as, as we've gone in and looked at your story. But I got to start off here. I, I have a random question for you. We found a Wizard Office Halloween party photo in issue number 90 from February of 1999 showing you dressed up and credited as, quote, Greg Eatman Orlando. So you got to fill us in on who is and why you chose to dress as Eatman. Oh, yeah. Eatman was an actual anime character. And. And he had a manga series as well. And it was produced, uh, it was translated and, and uh, released in America by Viz Comics. And I really like the character because he's just so stupidly absurd. <laughs> you know, he can eat anything. And like if he eats a gun, his hand will form into that gun and he can shoot people with you know, his gun hand. Wow. And on top of that, I was very, very lazy. And the costume, if you look at it, it's absolutely horrible. <laughs> I put it to, I put it together in about 40 minutes with some help from a fellow wizard copy editor. So it really was like kind of slapdash and it seemed like perfect for Eat Man, you know, just. <laughs> Here's this obscure character who's so goofy and, you know. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because, like, at first you're saying, yeah, I'm thinking, oh, he's like Matter Eater Lad, like from the Legion of Superheroes. But then I'm like, now he sounds more like grunge, you know, because he can sort of absorb the properties. And, yeah, and then all of a sudden he's random, you know, because he can turn into, like, the, the weapon hand. So there's so much, so much to work with there. So now I'm, I'm intrigued by each man. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> but uh, now, like you said, he's an anime, he's a manga creation. So it sounds like you are pretty well versed in Japanese graphic storytelling. But Greg, just how did American comic books enter your life? What is your origin story? Oh, gee, well, I learned to read at a very young age. And I did it by reading comic books, you know, the Spidey Super Stories, regular Spider-Man comics, you know, anything I could get my hands on. Initially, my mother read to me and my grandmother read to me and they read comic books Anything that we found lying around the house or we got at a stationery store or whatever, you know, I, I picked up those stories. I absorbed the, the, the love for those characters. And, yeah, it helped me to read way before I entered kindergarten. And I, I sort of kept that love going, you know, through my early years. And I lost it at some point. But I regained it before college, you know, with Spider-Man with the black costume, the, the costume you're wearing in your, uh, you know, profile picture yeah. here. That sort of got me back into comics. And from there, it was video games and comics, and I stumbled onto Wizard. 
So you're reading comics, you're not reading comics, you're back reading comics. Now, I gotta ask this, speaking of which, uh, Spider-Man and all that. So in the bullpen section of issue 70, you are quoted under the filler copy feature like where it's literally stated they just needed to fill space you were asked what the most important comic book to you was do you remember what you said maybe amazing spider-man 248 correct that's an excellent memory you said few things in this world moved me as much as this story where spidey visits a small boy who is dying of leukemia and also happens to be his biggest fan so the question becomes has any other comic since then beat that story for emotional impact or why does it continue to resonate with you oh that's such a brilliant story it's just a wonderful story about spidey and humanity and and how we deal with hardship and it's not even a full issue story it's just a it's a backup story and it's so wonderfully done I love a lot of comic books and a lot of comic books have you know a, a very substantial emotional appeal and punch but that one i mean that's still the one for me i absolutely love it the panel where spider-man is hugging the the child and you know it's going to end horribly but for this one moment spider-man has he's made his day yeah well it's really interesting to think you know how far back that was published at what point did the make a wish foundation exist and how many times has that actually played out in real life now for so many people that they so many kids that are in the hospital or terminal whatever's going on and they get visits from their favorite superhero whether it's the actual actor or somebody in a costume playing the part that's fantastic so who knows uh, how much inspiration that had for a lot of people besides yourself so speaking of which though we're going to talk about shortly here your journey to wizard but i do have to ask you first appeared in the wizard masthead with the title of copy editor in issue 70 this is june 1997 cover date from what we found here and prior to this i understand you worked as an english teacher and you were the envy of all 12 year old boys throughout history as a video game tester so (laughs) what what were these life circumstances and steps that led you to working at wizard magazine as with all teachers i got into it for the most noble of purposes, I was chasing a a girl in college, (laughs) and I entered the English education program. I ended up teaching high school English for, I want to say, an entire year at a vocational technical high school in Delaware. And the kids were all great. Some of them were very, very gifted. Others, not so much, but they were all there to learn, you know, technical skills like cooking and, you know, mechanical repair and all that kind of stuff. So they weren't the most dedicated students in terms of English. And, 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 you know, that's not to disparage the entirety of them. You know, some of them were just absolutely brilliant. I wasn't the best teacher and I had the, the worst supervising teacher of all. Her idea of literature was to pop the tape in the VCR and hit play. And, you know, when it came my turn to teach, you know, I actually brought out books for the children. Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah. And we read and we, you know, we talked about passages and what this meant and themes and stuff. You know, it was a total night and day transition from my supervising teacher to, you know, the student teacher, me. And yeah, I'm not sure the kids uh, entirely enjoyed my uh, <laughs> my methods. You weren't quite the inspiration of Robin Williams and Dead Poets <laughs> Society. You didn't no, quite I hit w- the mark there. I was not. <laughs> 
but I, I did enough to, uh, you know, to be certified. And to this day, I can teach high school English in, I want to say, like 38 to 40 states. I'd probably have to take the, the national teaching exams again, you know, just to be recertified. But I could actually do it. And that's a threat. <laughs> that's a direct threat to all the kids of America. You know, I could teach you high school English if you're not good. And then later on, yeah, I, I actually tested video games. There was a video game company on Long Island called Acclaim. Yes. It developed and published some of the worst video games ever. Yes. I worked as a tester for the morning shift, meaning I got up at like five in the morning to go to a job that started at 7 a.m. And I got off at uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. And during those eight hours, I played video games, you know, and I wrote up detailed bug reports about all the horrible things that happened in these video games that weren't supposed to happen. And then a lot of times you're just like, yeah, the whole game, can you just yes. start from scratch? What were you doing? <laughs> oh, man. For example, one of the first games I tested was Quarterback Club, a football game. Now, you know, I'd seen football games, you know, I watched with my father. I wasn't the most well-versed in football, but I could tell playing the game, you know, when the little characters didn't go the way they were supposed to go for certain plays, and I would write that up. And then somebody learned that I, you know, actually knew where the periods went in terms of sentences and stuff. <laughs> so I went through the entirety. There was a lot of text in that in that quarterback club video game. And and it was all written by like, uh, I want to say a chimpanzee. <laughs> so, you know, so I would go line by line and, and write, you know, this is how a human would say this sentence. And, <laughs> Very and helpful. E yes. And e every day I would write up, I want to say 30 to 50 bug reports on, you know, pieces of paper. And they would have to be typed in by the lead tester. And uh, the guy soon uh, came to hate me. I mean, he hated me with a passion because I wrote up so many bug reports. And eventually, I'm embarrassed to say, I wrote up so many bug reports and I was so skilled at finding bugs that they made me lead tester for uh, a Magic the Gathering game. And this, this Magic the Gathering game, I have to tell you, it was absolutely horrible. I mean, I played that game for, I want to say, nine months straight, and it never got any better. Wow. Now, I got to ask, Greg, you know, because eventually Acclaim and the world of comic books cross paths. So during your tenure there at Wizard, were you aware of when Valiant was bought out by Acclaim and became Acclaim Comics? Oh, yeah. While I was with Acclaim, we tested Iron Man Exo Man of War. Yes. A particularly horrible game. <laughs> a horrible game on two fronts, Iron Man and Exo. Oh, that is fantastic. Now, uh, speaking of things that I, I think we're going to find some common ground here. Now, you were profiled in Wizard 80 as one of the damned. You know, they would do these yes. staff member profiles. And you proudly displayed on your desk a copy of This Is Spinal Tap on VHS and She-Hulk in the Fantastic Four costume, an action figure. These are two of my... My favorite things. Are, are we twins, Greg? Do you want to be Danny DeVito or Arnold? It's your choice. 
Twin brothers from different mothers, yes. <laughs> so, like, are you are you a big Spinal Tap fan? Yes, I love Spinal Tap. And in college, in fact, I got to interview uh, Michael McKeon. Oh. And it was funny because he was performing at the University of Delaware as his character. David St. Hubbins, David really? St. Hubbins, yes. <laughs> a solo performance? Yes, a solo performance. No and the funny thing was, when I interviewed him, he did the whole English accent and he did the shtick. So it was weird. I had questions to ask Michael McKeon. Uh, <laughs> and he, you know, he pretended he was David St. Hubbins. So I kind of had to switch in midstream. But yeah, he was great. And, you know, and he held an audience by himself as David St. Hubbins. I love hearing that. I, I got to do some more research and find out about how that went, because I've seen them live a few times. I saw once as Spinal Tap, and then once as the actors, where they called themselves Unwigged, where they were, ac they were actually <laughs> being themselves, but playing Spinal Tap songs and telling behind-the-scenes stories. So, wow, that's so cool. Now, one more thing I got to mention, though, is Visible on the wall of that office was a Rob Liefeld fighting American poster. Greg, was this a joke? Seriously, was this a joke? That is one of my prized possessions. I actually have the original fighting American comic book. That's just a total absolute ripoff of Captain America. I proudly have that in my parents' home, and I will never trade that. I will never sell it. It's, it might be buried with me, actually. <laughs> so, no, it's not a joke. I loved everything about the fighting American, the, just the absolute sheer ballsiness of the swipe. And Rob, I don't know if you've ever or are even aware of his podcast, but he did a multi-part episode detailing all the legalities, everything he had to do to win in court against Marvel with Fighting Americans. So it was pretty fantastic. Oh, yeah. I actually interviewed him a couple of times for Wizard. A very nice man. Say what you will about his, his art style, you know, and his, his lack of sort of anatomical prowess, I guess, in, in the area of drawing. But he's a very, very nice, very friendly, very sociable guy. As long as you don't mention Wizard Magazine, yeah, it's weird. It, it's a sore spot for a bunch of people. I interviewed Frank Miller once, and I was totally, uh, well, I mean, I was vaguely aware of how much he hated Wizard, but he was he was gracious, too. You know, he sat down with me at, at uh, San Diego Comic-Con and, uh, you know, agreed to be interviewed. And later, after the fact, I learned that he, you know, pretty much hated everything Wizard. <laughs> Uh, you got to play the game, though. Got to play the game. So speaking of which, playing games, but then writing and copy editing and everything else for Wizard Magazine, how did you end up walking through that door, Greg? Oh, well, I was testing video games at the time, and testing video games has a limited amount of charm, especially when you're making $8 an hour. So I was on the lookout for another job. And at the time, you know, this this probably dates me, certainly, but you actually had to print out your resume, print out a cover letter, you know, attach writing samples and then stuff it in an envelope and ship it off, you know, with, at the post office on Monday. I answered an ad in The New York Times and for people, you know, who haven't picked up a newspaper ever. Uh, the New York Times was like 
the place to, to be for job wanted ads back in the day. The Sunday paper was thick with literally, I don't know, 50 pages of job ads. And Wizard uh, advertised one month, you know, we need copy editors, people who can write and edit. So I said, well, it's got to be me. And I sent them, a, you know, a resume, some writing samples from uh, my college newspaper. Not some of your bug reports? You not, didn't think that would impress the them? Re- the bug <laughs> reports were all written in crayon, uh, <laughs> sometimes in blood, uh, and probably not fit for wizard. And, yeah, I didn't think much of it, but I sent off a resume, and I got a call back. And, yeah, I visited Wizard's offices. I did an editing test. I interviewed with a bunch of people. And, again, I didn't expect anything. The editor told me after the fact, he said, you know, we were watching you leaving the building, and you walked around the entire building, and you didn't <laughs> you didn't know where your car was. <laughs> And it's true, I didn't. I was so out of whack that I forgot where I parked. But it turns out I did very well on the editing test. And uh, somebody must have thought I was right for the job because, uh, you know, I started at Wizard with issue number 70. Yeah. Now, who was the the crew at this time uh, as you kind of got to know everybody in the office? Who were your buddies early on and who were you impressed by, whether by (laughs) humor or by just sheer comics knowledge? Oh, my fellow copy editor was Mark Wilkowski, and he had an encyclopedic knowledge of comic books. He was a great guy. He was the most talented copy editor I've ever worked with, and he was just a very, very nice guy. And pretty soon, he invited me to his lunch group. He ate lunch with a bunch of people, including Mike Fasolo, who was a second floor office worker uh, at the time. Dan DiGiacomo, who was also on the second floor. I believe he worked in accounting at the time. I love Jim McLaughlin. I thought he was a brilliant writer. He came up with the, the funniest story ideas. I loved magic words. Yeah, so, I mean, it was a very talented crew at that time, and I learned a lot from every single one of them. And so for you, though, the idea of being a copy editor maybe wasn't exactly set in stone. And so I'm just curious for you, how early on did you find that you had more responsibilities and your role was evolving? Or were you wearing multiple hats from the beginning, Mr. Popular? I mean, where were you at? (laughs) Well, the first issue was pretty straightforward. You know, they were figuring out what I could do and what I couldn't do. Uh, With the second issue, I think I fired the video game. Columnist. <laughs> I was told it would be a good idea for me to fire someone. <laughs> and I have to tell you that years and years after the fact, I can report that I've yet to see any benefit from firing someone. <laughs> you know, Wizard was always looking for sort of professionalism. We were trying to get to be, you know, a better written, a smarter magazine. And some of the columnists we had were just sort of fans 
they weren't necessarily professional writers. You know, in the case of the, the video game guy, I think he was just a guy who was somebody's friend who liked to get video games. And I think with the first issue I was on, the guy wrote a review of Death Trap Dungeon that was made by Eidos Interactive. And Eidos Interactive was very sensitive about its games. If you said anything bad about you know, it's games, they had PR representatives call and they would threaten to, you know, pull advertising. So immediately there, there was some sense that, you know, the video game column needed work. And then I was told, of course, you know, hey, Greg, it would be good for you to fire someone. <laughs> What a directive. That is fantastic. Now, speaking of your work, though, you know, you've mentioned when you were profiled here as one of the damned that you handled the picks section, you know, kind of the hot comics for that month, the if you missed price guide blurbs, and also casting call. Now, we haven't had a chance to talk to anyone yet about this very popular feature, which involved fan casting a live action comic book movie with actors of the time. And this is before that was an annual occurrence at Hollywood in the real world. So what do you recall about this feature and how was it put together? And frankly, why were you then asked to be involved? Oh, gee, well, that was during the time when I was writing a lot of stuff. I was writing those three monthly columns. I was writing and editing portions of the anime and manga column. I was uh, supervising and writing the video game column. So yeah, casting call was part of my duties. But I had a lot of help with that. Basically, a bunch of people went into a room every single month, and we threw around copies of magazines and pictures, and, and we sort of debated who would be a great actor to play a role in a comic book movie. And hopefully, our debates were all spirited, but, you know, that we would come to a common agreement in terms of an actor. That very rarely happened. <laughs> we would often build like children and you know there were a lot of compromises and sort of begrudging choices but we would come up with a list of characters you know for a given movie spider-man or the x-men or whatever and then i would go off and i would write in solitude description of the the roles and who we thought was right for the roles and why we thought they were right for the roles. And I had to do that. If you look at the uh, the column itself, the blurbs are all very short. I want to say it was like less than 100 words per character. So you really had to be brief and sort of get to the point really, really quick. And, you know, given Wizard, you also had to be a little bit humorous or, you know, snarky or insightful. And I tried to do that. And I had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. I mean, and I'll say like, I'm looking here, for example, I just grabbed issue 82 off the shelf. And in issue 82, you guys were casting an Alpha Flight movie where <laughs> you had Ben Affleck as Guardian, Jillian Anderson as the Vindicator, and the Womp from Star Wars as Sasquatch. Get that guy some work. It had yes. been a couple years. <laughs> he would need an arm transplant too, but uh, also you know, we'd, we'd work on that. Just always fun stuff like that. So yeah, I mean that was one of my favorite features when that came up. And in some way, I think I like to think it inspired my first foray into podcasting. I have a another show I've been doing for about six years now. It's called Sequel Quest, where we pitch sequels to franchises that ended or you know one-off films that never got them, and then we do our own fan casting and things like that. So it was definitely.
certainly something that I look forward to. I enjoyed your work heartily, that's for sure, while I was reading. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, and I'm going to have to check that out. Sequel Quest. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun one. Now, one thing I want to ask you, too, is in your profile, you were also quoted uh, and asked about your most bizarre wizard moment. And you said, quote, Walking into the office of Wizard's Sister Magazine Toy Fair and noticing everything was covered in saran wrap, then following the trail of plastic scraps back to my desk where I found a pair of scissors with a small piece of wrap in them. I was framed. <laughs> so we've heard about the a uh, similar prank where everything was being covered in tin foil a couple of years later but to your knowledge was this the first incident of a mass wrapping how responsible were you for the idea and who else was involved oh man well a common theme at wizard was we were all super competitive with one another the magazines would compete with one another to outdo each other in terms of you know pranks or video game prowess or anything really the saran wrap was the first time i was introduced to a, a wizard prank i didn't participate in it and I was absolutely framed for it. But yeah, you'd walk into the office sometimes and the, the elves would have had their way with you. <laughs> One time I walked into the office and it was pretty early because I used to get in at about eight o'clock uh, in the morning because, you know, I like to, you know, start the day in a quiet environment and everything was covered in string. I mean, just thousands and thousands of uh, pieces of string tied to every portion of our office. Wow. So I took my scissors and I cut a little path through the string to my to my chair and I sat down and I began the day's work surrounded in string. I mean, literally, there was just a path through the string. You know, I cut my computer free of string <laughs> and I sat down and I started to work and uh, everybody came in and eventually somebody came up to me and said, you know, you're going to have to cut all the, the string off. And I told them, I said, uh, absolutely not. I spent maybe an hour, an hour and a half cutting this little path through the string. That's all I'm doing. I'm perfectly able to work with the string. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think it's a, you know, it cozies up my uh, office workspace. I said, if you want, you're welcome to cut it down when I leave. But this is the sole amount of work I'm doing in terms of, you know, removing this detritus from this prank from my office. Yeah, we, we hadn't heard that one before. We've heard of a lot of these, but the string, I mean, that that's another one that's elaborate. You know, to their credit, whoever did it, it was inspired. And it was a <laughs> lot of work, I mean, because there was string tied everywhere. And whoever did it, or my coworkers, eventually just removed all the string from my desk. I think it took two or three days, actually, but for a while, it was it was kind of neat, you know, my little cozy string home. Now, as a follow-up to that, I will say, I just pulled out a issue 92 of April 1999 here, and they mention another incident that involved over 1,000 balloons packed over five feet high and jammed into every nook and cranny of the mighty wizard bullpen. Quote, it was like something out of Independence Day, wizard copy editor Greg Orlando said. Quote, save for the fact that there were no aliens, no mind-numbingly repetitive explosions, and the problem was not resolved with the aid of a Macintosh power book. I firmly blame this on Toy Fair and the people who cancelled Sheriff Lobo. <laughs> 
Yes, <laughs> that is that is uh, direct from my mouth. They didn't mention we also got that offender's desk. We opened up all his drawers and we filled them with packing peanuts. And that particularly awoke his, his ire. <laughs> Now, getting back to your work, such as it was, did you have a particular favorite writing assignment or any other type of responsibility, a project that you got to work on that stands out for you? Oh, the Price Guide editor and I, his name was Lars. We went to Sotheby's one time and Lars was given $1,000 and he tried to bid on comic books. He was outbid at every turn, as I recall. (laughs) But eventually he bought an old Batman comic, and it was a really cool comic. I think it was Detective Comics, around issue 50. And it was cool because it had the death of the Joker. The Joker actually died in the comic. Wow. And he he won this auction. And, uh, you know, we're we're leaving Sotheby's. It's a blazing hot day in New York City. And Lars says to me, I don't know... what I'm going to do with this comic. I mean, he felt unsafe. (laughs) And, you know, it was New York. I mean, it was perfectly safe. But I agreed that I would take it home with me. So I I took the comic. I stuffed it under my shirt. I walked downtown to Penn Station. I took the train, the Long Island Railroad train, home to Oceanside, New York. And on the way... You know, on this train, I opened this $900 comic book (laughs) and I read it on the train. I thought that was pretty cool. After the fact, I got to write about our experience. That was my first real feature writing opportunity at Wizard, and I think that stands out. There was other stuff. I once hung up on Harlan Ellison. That was a (laughs) momentous occasion. I interviewed Fabian Nisiza in his home in New Jersey, and he physically assaulted me. What? I, I thought that was a, an experience that I'll never have again. Are you a button pusher, Greg? Is that what we're hearing here? Well, I mean, you know, if you hear the story, it's not entirely my fault. <laughs> with Harlan Ellison, I hung up very much accidentally. And with Fabian Nisiza, I'd have to tell the entire story for that <laughs> one to, to come through. Make that a bonus episode. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely was not my fault. All right. Well, so let, let me ask you, you, you teased us uh, with your involvement prior to the show with some special edition magazines, which we actually have in our archives. These are Sci-Fi Invasion and Bean Power Magazine. Yes, yes the Beanie Baby Collecting Guide. And we have this here, your name, right there, prominently in the masthead. So what can you tell us about the genesis of these wildly different publications? And who was your source on the latest Beanie Baby news? Oh, man. Thankfully, I didn't have to write anything for Bean Power. (laughs) It would have probably taken eight to ten years off my life. As it was, I copy edited, I want to say, the the vast majority of those magazines, and I lost about 35 IQ points. (laughs) I've tried to block out as much of Bean Power as humanly possible, but it was a freelance assignment, and I did it. You know how you do something, and you ask yourself, why am I doing this, or how did my life come to this? (laughs) That was my experience with Bean Power. Even when I was receiving the the check for the freelance work I did, I, I looked at the check, and I sort of like stepped outside my body and thought, you know, this is me, but how did I get here? (laughs) 
Well, it makes me wonder, you know, if Pogs had only held on for like six (laughs) more months, if they weren't such a short-lived fad, we could have had Pog Punch Magazine or probably be called Slammer Exclamation Point Magazine. Oh, had you said that during the wizard days, I would have warned you because, (laughs) you know, they would have taken that to heart. Yeah, don't let Doug Goldstein hear. Yes, Doug was the uh, editor for those magazines. And uh, thankfully, he gave me a lot of freelance work. He was a very nice guy. He went on to do great things. So this is my question for you, that obviously 1997 to 2000, that's, that's roughly your era there. And Wizard was at the height of its power in the industry, really. So for you, like, what were the perks of working at the Guide to Comics? And how did you see the magazine? maybe throw its geek cred and muscle around, you know? Well, we regularly attended comic book conventions across the country. Wizard sponsored its own Comic-Con in Chicago, and we'd often travel to San Diego Comic-Con, and it was it would be weird. I would just be walking around, and somebody would, like, start staring at me, and maybe they didn't approach me immediately, but they would follow me, and you might see that they were taking pictures, and finally, if they got the nerve, they would be like, you're Greg Orlando. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, it's just the, the honest feeling like to have like that sort of D-list celebrity that people would recognize you, you know, just when you were walking around and they would tell you like, oh, I love Wizard. Do you know Jim McLaughlin? You know, he's the greatest. Can, can I meet him? And, you know, I loved meeting the fans. They were all very nice. But, you know, here I was, a, a kid of 20-something, and, and people were telling me that they loved, you know, the magazine I worked for. And if you uh, if you ever thought about it, like, we were working in an office that was kind of decrepit, and, you know, we didn't have much contact with people because Wizard had AOL, but the Internet wasn't awash with the fan communities as it is now. So it was always very weird to have that sort of contact with fans. And of course, when we, you know, when you worked at the Wizard Comics booth, you'd have long lines, you'd have people competing to to win comic books that we gave away. And, you know, they'd just be gushing over the magazine. It it was a, a really weird, you know, experience for a kid to have. Yeah, and I gotta ask, while all that was going down, so for you, though, like, was there either Comics Pro or just Celebrity that happened to pass through, whether it was at a convention or over the phone, that for you was just like a real high moment? Oh, I loved interviewing Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison was always very uh, thoughtful, he was insightful, he was funny, and it was weird because when I was speaking with him over the phone, I could always understand him. But I always recorded the conversations we had so I could pull quotes from my articles later. Whenever I went to to pull quotes from Grant Morrison, I couldn't understand it because he had that accent. (laughs) It was the funniest thing. I had to go to the Toy Fair office and I had to talk to the Toy Fair editor. He was very skilled at translating Grant Morrison on tape. (laughs) And I always loved that because that was like sort of a monthly thing. Oh, Christopher Priest. Oh, yes. I used to interview Christopher Priest, formerly Jim Owsley. And one time he came out with this brilliant laugh. And I couldn't recreate it if I tried. But it was it was something like, <laughs> I was stunned when he when he laughed like that. And I had it on tape and I used to replay it at regular intervals because it was just the, the funniest, coolest laugh ever. 
Yeah, I got to interview a lot of great comic book creators. Well, and I find it interesting that you got to do so much, you know, feature writing and all these other things, and yet all throughout, Greg Orlando is the copy editor of Wizard. <laughs> never a contributor, never a staff writer. Always copy editor. Yeah, they understood that, that I was very skilled at, at uh, editing stuff, fixing other people's writing, and Wizard was sort of very stratified at the time. There was very little opportunity to move up and around. And, and, you know, that was understood by most people. You know, I asked to be staff writer at one point and they sort of pushed my application aside. You know, uh, I had a lot of fun at Wizard, but I also understood the game. There were very few opportunities to, to shift positions. Now, Greg, what, what, I, I got to say, though, one person that you could have appealed to was the big cheese himself, Garib yes. Sheamus. And so we have to ask you, your personal opinion, Garib Sheamus, cool or fool? Very nice guy. I only spoke to him a couple of times. Part of my duties was to make a sense of from the top. Uh, that was his monthly column, and it always came to me in a block of text that was indecipherable. <laughs> like, again, you know, it was like I was back at a claim, and I was reading text that I thought was written by a chimpanzee. You know, no offense to Garib, I don't know if he ever actually wrote the columns that were attributed to him, but they were all very, you know, like they were incoherent. Uh, they began with, Today I met so-and-so, and we did so-and-so, a.k.a. the bragging segment. And then there was a rundown of uh, stuff in the magazine. And then there was some sort of uh, advertisement at the bottom. You know, it was very formulaic in its construction. But it was it was like you were reading like a, a an essay written by a second grader. <laughs> and I was told very early on just to make sense of it and ship it off. And, and that's what I did. Personally, Garib was always very nice to me. We didn't interact much. So, yes, uh, Head Cheese, brilliant guy for creating the magazine, but uh, I couldn't tell you much else. Now, I got to tell you this, Greg. So I, I pulled up Wizard issue 79, the from the top here. Don't know how much involvement you had in this or what you would have been thinking if you were adapting his writing to this. But here is what Garib had to say. With technology advancing so quickly, I'm always asked the question, are computers going to replace comics? And so he says, at Wizard, we spend a lot of time and energy on our America Online site and our website coming up with ways to enhance someone's online comics comic book experience. We've been very conscious not to put the magazine online and say, okay, now you can download it. And then jumping ahead here, there's also a tremendous difference between going into a store and buying a comic and being able to hold it, read it, keep it, go back to it over and over again. People can't experience that in an electronic format. You can't hold a computer comic because it only exists in a cyber world. And so he goes on and finally says, so there's no fear of computers killing comics. Computers can enhance the experience like TV or movies, but ultimately they won't replace comics as long as publishers put out products you want. And speaking of cool products, and then there's <laughs> the sales pitch for two more paragraphs. There's the end. Yeah, that was indicative of Wizard as a whole. Wizard just didn't get the internet. We had to share AOL accounts. Like each AOL account, you could use five screen names. 
And I had to share my Wizard uh, AOL account with other editors. One editor from Toy Fair, I shared uh, an account with me, the research director, uh, and I think two other guys. Wizard did not understand the Internet. And the funny thing was I used the Internet a lot at Wizard. I used it to check facts and, and, and names and spellings and, you know, schedules for comics and all that sort of stuff. So I was on AOL using the Internet a lot. And it got to the point where somebody sat me down and said, what are you doing? You're using the Internet all the time. <laughs> and I said to them, yes, well, a copy editor should be checking facts at all times. And they just didn't understand it. You know, they thought AOL was a tool to promote Wizard and you should be on for 15 minutes at most per day. And that, that philosophy sort of extended well past my stay at Wizard. And it's why, you know, so many websites just beat Wizard to the punch and why Wizard absolutely failed at presenting its material to an Internet audience. Yeah, unfortunately so. This is my question then. So you made your departure from Wizard, or as you put it, quote, you got fired around issue 95. So we haven't heard from anyone of the 90s era who was actually fired prior to, you know, the mass layoffs of the final years. So what were the circumstances of you hitting the road, so to speak? Well, Wizard actually fired a lot of people. You know, my fellow copy editor, Mark Wilkowski, had been there for five Five years. Again, he was a very talented editor. He was a very skilled editor. He loved Wizard and he would have been, you know, working there to issue 200 if he had the chance. They just sort of phased him out and fired him one day. I, I walked into the office and they told me, you know, we fired Mark. It's nothing against you. You know, you can take the day off, come back tomorrow and we'll start anew. So it was more common than it was uh, led to believe. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the treatment was very harsh. For me, I sort of knew it was coming. I had been there for two years. They didn't recognize that I wanted to transition to a staff writer. Uh, which I thought was more fitting considering the amount of writing I was doing per issue and the fact that I was responsible for taking a lot of features that were written by other people and fixing them after the fact. You know, sometimes uh, with a monthly magazine, you don't have enough time for writers to rewrite features based on your feedback. Sometimes the editors have to do it. And oftentimes that responsibility fell to me. Sometimes it was so bad, I would pitch an idea for the issue. It would be accepted. Oh, we'll do this story. And they would give the story to a freelancer. The freelancer would write the story that I had suggested. And for one reason or another, it wasn't what we wanted or didn't meet our standards. And I would have to rewrite it after the fact. So it was sort of a kick in the crotch. Uh, pardon me, to have to rewrite a feature that you would suggested in the first place. So I, I sort of saw it coming. They let me rewrite a lot of features, but they wouldn't let me be a staff writer. And finally, I think my two years had passed and I went into one of the wizard editor's offices and I said, we haven't had my salary discussion, you know, for my yearly raise. And the guy said, oh, we'll discuss it later. And I went back to my desk and I thought about it and I said, well, 
something's not right. And I went back and I said, well, can we discuss it sooner rather than later? And he kind of smirked and I knew absolutely then I was going to be fired. I was fired shortly after. Wow. And unfortunately, you know, my treatment was sort of dismissive and, and brusque, but some of my friends got it a lot worse. Well, did you ever think that it was some sort of comeuppance after they had suggested that maybe you should fire someone? Oh, yeah, no, it's it's good for you to fire somebody, <laughs> you know, it's, and maybe they were taking their own advice because they, they fired a bunch of people, you yeah. know, and then they had mass layoffs. And in fact, I would highly recommend uh, reading Rick Marshall's story. Rick Marshall was the online editor for Wizard, and he worked at Wizard well after, you know, I had left. Yeah, yeah, we've had him on, yeah. But his treatment was he had to train his successor. So that sort of thing happened more frequently than you might expect. Yeah, now maybe looking back on some of the brighter spots, I ask you then, Greg, what question am I not asking about your time at Wizard that maybe I should be? What is the thing if somebody said, oh, you worked at Wizard, that would immediately spring to mind for you as the the main topic of conversation? Well, you didn't ask about the White Castle eat-off, which was a major, major, you know, uh, just a fun, indicative example of my time at Wizard. We touched briefly on the sort of competitive nature at Wizard, but I have to tell you that we competed over everything. Like, you'd be playing pinball and there'd be a guy with a a clipboard taking down statistics. (laughs) You know, they had a pinball. We had scavenger hunts when we, we would compete against each other, you know, in teams to see who would do the craziest stunts. Just super, super competitive beyond any sort of reasonable, you know, expectation for people in the editorial business. We had an intern living at our house in West Nyack, and he was a great guy. He decided to live in our basement, and I very rarely visited the basement. When he was leaving, uh, I went down into the basement, and I have to tell you, the (laughs) the basement floor was filled, I mean, covered with Burger King boxes. (laughs) I mean, he ate Burger King so much and just didn't throw out his garbage that the whole floor, and it was a huge basement, it was just littered with Burger King boxes. That is amazing. Not a visual. So when you think of Wizard, all these, you know, sort of disconnected stories, it's one bizarre experience after another. And invariably, it wasn't wholly positive. You know, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I had a lot of fun. I met a lot of great people. I had a lot of great experiences. I read a lot of great comic books. I talked to a lot of great comic book creators So I would say the good far outweighs the bad. And did you keep any mementos or swag from your time at Wizard as kind of the trophy of that era? Oh, gee, yeah. Well, we had the toys. We always collected the toys. I kept fighting American, of course. Yes. (laughs) I kept piles and piles of loser comic books. At some point, I started collecting like the worst of the worst comic books you know, that they used to give away for free. And I have, uh, you know, I took away a lot of good friends, good yeah. friends that I, I talk with to this very day. So friends and memories counts as well. Yeah, and that being said, we're in the 30th anniversary year of Wizards' debut. Wow. And so it's been 30 years since that first issue came out. So for you... 
when you look back on, on the legacy of Wizard, you know, to the history of comics, or again, like you're saying, for your personal life, what, what do you feel is the legacy of Wizard and its many publications? Wizard was very entertaining. At its high point, it was insightful. It was the guide to comics. It had its day. The product, it varied in quality during its various eras. I think at the end, it became a little bit too much like Entertainment Weekly Mm -hmm. uh, and not in a very good way. But it was always enjoyable. It did a lot to entertain people and inform people. I think that's a good epitaph for Wizard. Absolutely. So what have you been up to and where can people find you online these days? Well, I'm hiding. So, uh, <laughs> you know, don't bother to contact me because I'm, I'm surly and often uh, unreachable. But I became a video game writer. I wrote scripts and dialogue for popular video games. I got to work for LucasArts, which was amazing. Yeah. You know, I got to work for Monolith Studios, Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, which was voted best video game of the year for 2014. I've had a lot of fun writing and editing. And if people want to reach me, you know, I'm or the land of the G on Twitter. Oh, and I would also like to recommend, I'm sorry, I'm going to make a plug here. No worries. But people visit heroinitiative.org. It's a charity established by Jim McLaughlin, who worked at Wizard all those many years. And it's a charity that helps comic book creators. You know, a, a lot of these comic book creators, they don't have health care or they don't have funds for retirement and they're suffering. And Hero Initiative has all these great auctions and sales and the funds go to help these comic book creators. And I think it's a very good charity for people who love comic books and people who, you know, want to help out these people who've created, you know, these great characters and stories for many, many years. Again, it's heroinitiative.org. Um, and I think that's it. And thank you for having me. This has been fun. It really has. Thank you, Greg, for truly Orlandoing this edition of the podcast. <laughs> and as always, thank you for listening. Of course, a shout out goes to all the Wizard alumni out there who have tuned in. And if you haven't been featured yet, there's still time. Yes, we want to hear your stories or help us get in contact with one of your former co-workers that you think would have an exciting story of their own to tell. I can tell you that next time around, we have a very unique interview in that we will be talking to a gentleman who actually worked in the Wizard Warehouse. Yes, we've heard many tales of the goings-on out there and the prizes and collectibles that were contained therein. Well, now you're going to find out what it was like to take care of those things, pack them up, ship them out. It's a very entertaining story that is to come. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, go ahead and find us on Twitter at Wizards Comics on Instagram at wizards underscore comics. And if you're looking for even more wizards base entertainment, go to YouTube, find Wizards Podcast, where we have many exciting videos for you to enjoy, celebrating comics collecting, and a lot of vintage stuff from the 90s. So until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.